Join us on what we like to call around Eagle. This is Super Bowl Sunday in the church. Doesn't get any bigger than today in church world. So this is the day that didn't just change some things. This is the day that changed everything. This is the day that Christmas had in mind when Jesus was born. Was looking forward to this day. This is the day that Palm Sunday had in mind when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey. It was this day. This is the day that Monday Thursday had in mind when Jesus took that basin of water and towel and washed the disciples' feet and fed them the last supper. This is the day that Good Friday had in mind when Pilate turned him over, when the crowds chanted crucify, when the Roman soldiers slung their mallets and drove those seven-inch iron spikes in his hands and through his ankles. This is the day that put hope on the map, and it put it on the map to stay. How many of you remember the winter of 2014, also known as the Polar Vortex winter? Anybody remember that? You probably just tried to block that one out of your mind. That was one of those winters where the snow just kept falling and the temperatures fell with it. You remember that? This was the time about towards the end of January when we were all looking at each other and go, why do we live here again? Why does anyone live in the north during that stretch? It was just brutal on so many fronts. Well, I came home from the office one polar vortex evening, and my wife Kendra said to me, honey, I think our washer lines are frozen. I said, how, how do you think, why do you think that? She goes, well, I turn on the washer, I hear it pull, calling for water, but nothing comes out. And it was about 15 below out, and our washer sits on the north wall, and I'm thinking that's probably not a bad conclusion, so... I went kind of messing around, trying to figure out what to do. I called the handyman guy, and I'm like, hey, I think our water lines are frozen, headed to the washer. Something with the washer lines are frozen. And he gave me some tips, you know, cut out the drywall and some sections, put a space heater. I'm like, this does not sound. So I did some of that, and still they're frozen. So a couple of days later, Kendra gives me the look like, uh, honey, our washer lines are still frozen. So I decide to pull the washer out, and I crawl back behind the washer, and I kind of start messing with the hot and cold lines back behind there, and those of you who know me well know that I virtually know nothing about handyman stuff other than I know red means hot and blue means cold, and so I thought to myself, I'm going to get a bucket, and I'm going to try to flush the lines out, Right? I don't know, maybe not. So anyway, I was going to flush the lines out, and I'm sitting back there, and I'm looking at hot and cold, and I think, well... Probably the cold line would be the right one to start with, right? Probably be more likely to be frozen, I'm thinking. So I pull the cold line and set it in the bucket, and I flip the lever on the spout there to get the cold line flowing. Water just gushes through that. All right, we're rolling. Cold line is clear. I let it run for like a minute just to make sure it's good and flushed out. And when I turn it off, I noticed out of the bucket some steam coming off the water. I reached up and felt the water line up by the, you know, where the washer dryer line is, and it felt warm. And I looked at the hose, blue. Cold line, stuck my hand down in the water, piping hot water. I thought, well, I better deal with what I thought was the hot line and turn it on, and sure enough, ice cold water out of the red line. I sat back behind the washer 
And it dawned on me that for 11 years, 11 years, our hot and cold water lines in the washer were reversed. As I was sitting back there, I said, this explains a lot of things. Here, I thought my new workout plan was really kicking into gear. I was thinking, you know, this shirt's fitting a little snug around the edges now, huh? I'm putting on an LB or two. I'm feeling pretty good. And then it it occurred to me, every load of laundry we did on cold for 11 years was pumping hot water into the cold only. So the clothes that were shrinking and fading were a result of this. And the look on my face, say with me now, the look on my face as I sat in our laundry room behind this washer, 15 below outside, 30 mile an hour wind, staring at this thing. That look on my face, that's some of the same look that those early folks around Jesus' tomb had. The same kind of blank stare and they, they're looking at that tomb, and they saw the, the blank, uh, saw the rock rolled over the face of it, and they're staring at it, and it's silent, and then all reality starts to dawn on them in that look right there. That's the scene we're going to look at here in Matthew 27 and 28. Follow up on the screens if you don't have a Bible with you. Matthew 27, here's the closing words of chapter 27. Pilate, the Roman leader sentences Jesus, though he knows Jesus is innocent, washes his hands of him, says the blood's on your head and hands, you Jewish leaders chanting crucify, but he's the one who issues the command, take a guard, Pilate answered, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So the seal would be kind of a melted wax-like substance, so that way if the rock was moved at all, it would break the, the wax seal. And so posted guard and sealed tomb equaled things went from bad to worse in those early followers' lives. That's what that meant. As bad as Good Friday was, as bad as the injustice of Jesus' arrest. Remember, he was the innocent one. He was the one who deserved to really be let go, and they let Barabbas go. Remember that whole scene? As bad as that was, and then when Pilate issued him to go ahead and be prepared to be crucified, which meant he was flogged repeatedly, where the whips of the Roman soldiers, the flesh would tear off the spinal column after so many lashes. During all that bloodshed and all that heartache, picture Mary, his mother. Picture Peter and John and some of his closest friends witnessing all that. And I'm sure in their heads along the way, they're thinking, Jesus is going to get out of this somehow. Like, Jesus makes the blind see. He gets the deaf hear. He, he even, like, removes the, the, the crippled disease from people. They can walk. They used to not be able to walk like this Jesus. He even walked up to Lazarus' tomb and dealt with Lazarus that way. Like, they're probably thinking, Jesus has got a plan here. As dark as Good Friday was for all of them, Silent Saturday was even darker still. Because he physically gave up his life on that cross. He physically was placed in that tomb, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and a large boulder was rolled over the mouth of that tomb and sealed 
and guards were posted. That moment right there is as dark and as difficult as those early followers had ever been a part of. Because in their mind, though Jesus had repeatedly told them some things, kind of like in my own life, how many times does Jesus have to tell me some things but I still haven't quite connected the dots on it? They weren't connecting the dots. And so they just thought, well, Jesus, you're gonna get out of this. This is not our definition of getting out of it. It looks like game over. Chapter 28, verse one, here's Jesus' plan, which didn't look like their plan. After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that would be Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. I love that image. You know, there's a line in Isaiah 66, 1, where the Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. I think what we see an angel of the Lord doing here is living that out. That he sees, uh, I need to roll this stone, send an angel to roll a large boulder away. And the angel just kind of sits down. Like we pull out a chair from the dinner table and sit down. An angel rolls the stone away and has a seat. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. And I don't know what kind of boulder Easter Sunday finds you facing these days. Could be a, a boulder of guilt, a boulder of shame, a boulder of regret, a boulder of brokenness, a boulder of grief a boulder of anxiety, a boulder of how am I gonna get through what I can't even imagine I'm going through. Whatever boulder that is, Easter Sunday reminds us that heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. And if he can do something with that boulder there in Matthew 28, gang, there's not a boulder we face today that he can't with one command cause to roll away and have an angel take a seat on it. So the angel sits down. This isn't quite what the Roman guards thought their day would look like. Picture that. Here's their face. <laughs> his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. <laughs> That's not the typical posture of the Roman guard, by the way. White as a sheet, shaking. You've been there. You've been so taken off guard, so in shock with something that's occurred that you can't even put words to it. That's what that was going on here. In their wildest dreams, they couldn't have imagined this sequence of events, and they stand there supposedly in control and finding out they're not nearly as in control as they think they are because heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. So verse five, the angel speaks up now and says to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, now I have told you. I love that, now I've told you. I've kind of done my job. So the women hurried away from the tomb, underline this in your Bibles, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Isn't that phrase, afraid yet filled with joy, isn't that such a commentary on life? Even life with Jesus. These, make no mistake, there's a whole lot going on here emotionally for folks, and you can be filled with fear and at the same time filled with joy. You know, that's, life, that's real life. 
where you can be encountering something and at this moment, maybe looking white as a sheet, yet hearing an angel's voice and telling you, hey, calm down, don't be afraid, and yet filled with joy, filled with hope, filled with peace, you can be simultaneously dealing with all of that. That's real. That's real life. That's real life in Christ. And here is the picture you get. This tomb now has become the place of resurrection. This tomb now has become the, it looks like it's over, it looks like game over, has now become new beginning. This tomb has become a place of hope. And not a kind of hope that's kind of these vague expectations and we want an outcome to go a certain way. Not that kind of hope. Not the kind of hope that ebbs and flows with circumstances. But a hope with deep roots, resurrection roots. A hope that's rooted in a person. That's a different kind of hope. Hope that's rooted in a person who said, this is what I'm gonna do. He did what he said he was gonna do. He is who he said he was. He rolled that stone away. He walked out of that grave. He called the shot before he executed the play. He said, this is how this whole thing's gonna go down. This is hope rooted in a person. And because hope, because he lives, hope lives. And this is a real kind of hope. This is Easter hope. This is resurrection hope. This is Jesus hope. This is hope rooted in a person. This is hope where there's another word to be said. And so what we're gonna look at here for a few minutes is kind of three Easter realities, three things that Easter changed that indicate the resurrection roots, a reason we can be a people of great hope today. The first thing is Easter changes the way we view death. Easter changes the way we view death. It's Easter Sunday, it's the events of Matthew 28 that that tell us that death moved from a period at the end of a sentence to a comma in the middle. That's what happened with death on this. And this doesn't hit us with the kind of power until we ourselves are walking through with a loved one, a close friend, a family member, and you walk someone to their point of death. Some of you have said goodbye most recently to someone you love so deeply. Is there not a freshness of power to Jesus bringing into your death some hope, some peace, some joy, some strength that you can't hardly put into words? Jesus changes the way you navigate and view death. It's a game changer for it. Just ask the Whiteley family and the hundreds and hundreds of you who came out yesterday when they laid Fred to rest yesterday afternoon. You know, Fred loved Easter weekend. I remember Fred would walk up to me on Good Friday, like, Pastor, he always had that, Pastor, it's about the cross and the blood. Loved Easter weekend. Or I thought about the Wilson family who said goodbye to Travis, 45-year-old husband and father two weeks ago. Or I thought about the Hart family or about the Batson family or so many of your other family. Have you, you've sat beside someone you love deeply and you've walked with them to the point where their physical life is ending and you've seen them laying in a casket and you walk through the memorial service and you stand at the gravesite and we as a people, we're living what Mary and Peter and John by that tomb were living, afraid yet filled with joy, wondering how you're gonna get through this pile of grief because it still hurts. Even people in Jesus who lose a loved one, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean you don't have grief. It doesn't mean you don't have questions. It doesn't mean you don't wrestle with all that. Here's the thing it does mean, though. You don't wrestle with it alone. 
There's someone with you who brings something called peace. He brings something called joy. He brings a strength. He brings a healing grace. He's there in the midnight hour. He's there. He changes the way we view death. Jesus changes that on Easter Sunday. That's why he said in John 8, 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Who do you know who says these things? Who have you ever met who looked you in the eye and said, hey, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I want to follow that guy. Because he called his shot and then he lived it. What's Jesus talking about? He's not talking about physical death. He himself saw physical death. He's talking about an eternal kind of life. He's like, hey, if you link up with me, If you live life in my yoke, if you become a follower of me, here's the reality. You're not gonna go from life to death. You're gonna go from life to life. See, that's what happens when someone dies in Jesus. They don't even see the physical death. Just as soon as death starts to come, just kind of starts to encircle that last breath of life, Jesus comes and says, hey, this person right here, dying in me, he's mine. And he comes to life. Don't even see it. You don't go from life to death. You go from life to life, an eternal kind of life now into the fullness of that life there. I remember Dallas Willard talking about as he was nearing the end of his physical life. Dallas is one of my spiritual heroes. He's written a ton on the spiritual life. He was a philosophy professor at USC for 30 plus years. And Dallas contracted pancreatic cancer, which you know anything about that's one of the kind of the most devastating kind for the body, really physically difficult to endure. And Dallas battled it for a couple of years. As he got towards the end of his life, his close friends who came around his bedside talked about the conversations they had with Dallas. And one of the most frequent things he said to his family and his friends as he got near the end, he thanked them for coming. And then he would say, hey, I think when I die, it might take me a few minutes to figure it out. you think about that. When I die, it might take me a few minutes to kind of figure out I've gone from life to life. See, Easter changes the way you view death. Death goes from a period at the end of a sentence to a comma in the middle. Resurrection Sunday changed that. Listen to how Craig Barnes put, I put this quote in your notes. We have been taught that our future is determined by the choices of our present, which makes us cautious and fearful. But the doctrine of heaven proclaims just the opposite. The end of our story is already written. By the grace of God, it ends wonderfully. Hear this. There's not a thing we can do to make it end any better. And because the ending is already written, we are free to enjoy the mystery of today without worrying about where life is heading. All we know about tomorrow is that Jesus is waiting for us in life and in death. Do you see how we can be a people of resurrection hope with deep roots? Because today says the end of the story has already been written and it can't get any better than this. So now you live today in light of that day. He changes the way you view death. And Easter changes the way you view life. Because he lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, do you know what that means about this life? That means you can live today with him. 
There's an everydayness to this relationship with Jesus. Following Jesus isn't just heaven when you die. It is that. It's wonderful. It is that. It's so much more than that. It's fullness of life with him right here and right now. Why? Because he lives. Do you believe Jesus is alive? By his spirit, he's here. Do you know you can talk with Jesus about that boulder that you're staring at, that you're not sure is ever going to move? Do you know you can talk with the living and resurrected Christ about that? Do you know that he can do something about that? Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. You know he can do something about that? Do you know you can open up the deepest places in this interior space of your heart that you're convinced no one else understands or maybe no one else knows about? Do you know you can open that up to him? It's called the with God life, the Emmanuel life. That because he lives and reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, becoming his follower means you can build a marriage with Jesus today, right here, right now. You can learn how to love your spouse with Jesus. You can learn how to build a family and raise children as difficult as that can be. You, can, you don't have to do that alone. You can do that with Jesus You can put your hands on the plow and go to the office and go to work with Jesus. You can stand by the graveside of someone you love so deeply and you don't navigate it alone. You're with Jesus. You live this life with him. Why? Because he lives and he reigns forever and ever with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus changes the way we view life. There is an everydayness. His aliveness equals an everydayness to this walk with him. Do you see how the Christian life is so much more than heaven when you die? It is that. It's way more than that. Which, do you see the humility of God in this? The humility of God in that he says to us as humans, whom he created in his image, whom he sent Christ to die for, whom he sent the Spirit to inhabit, God who did all of that. The only reason we're here, we eat, sleep, move, and have our being in him. Do you see the humility of God to create a humanity? To do everything he's done for us and then to step back and say, I will let them choose if they want to live this life with me or kind of push me to the margins and try to kind of navigate life. I mean, you know deep down in your heart of hearts, like I know God's there and I know he cares and I know this really matters, but maybe I'm, I'm young enough and I haven't hit enough of those. Uh, you know, later on in life, I'll kind of get that God thing sorted out when I get down the road and you kind of rationalize all. Do you see the humility of God in letting us carve out the kind of life that pushes him to the margins and says, God, I appreciate your willingness to intervene here, but I got this. I got this. I can handle this, I can navigate on my own, I'm gonna do what I want, how I want, when I want. I got this. And the humility of God to let us carve out a kind of life that really doesn't have much integration with his life. We can do that. My only question for you is, why would you want to? I just step back and look at it rationally for a minute and go, why would I want to do that? And miss out on what? I, I would miss out on a good and loving and gracious, gracious and strong and wise and generous God, companionship with that God in my everyday life. Why would I want to miss that? 
Why would I want to carry the burdens of this life and navigate all the mysteries of this life and pretty much try to do that alone? Why would I want to do that when there's a God who says, I'll help you, I'll be there. You don't have to go through the valley of the shadow of death on your own. It doesn't mean you won't go through it. It just means you won't go through it alone. Why would I want to do that? It seems to me wisdom is, what an offer. Because he lives and reigns with the Holy Spirit, with the Father, Jesus says you can live right here, right now, with me. I I don't think anything compares with that. If you've tasted that kind of a life, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've yet to taste it, take someone's word around you who has tasted it. Have a coffee with them coming up and just ask them about that with God life and look in their eyes and see if you see something that perhaps is missing in your own. Because I have a sense if you've pushed God to the margins, you know it when you put your head on your pillow at night, when you stand with the great unfixables of your life, what do you do? I choose to take these great unfixables and I choose to lay them before King Jesus who lives and reigns with the Holy Spirit and with the Father. Say, Jesus, help me with this. I don't understand this. I don't have an answer for this. I don't know we're gonna get through this. And because he's alive, he's there. And he'll walk with you and he'll carry you and he'll strengthen you. I can't imagine any other life but that life. So Easter changes the way we view death and Easter changes the way we view life. Check out this prayer from Ted Lauder. He wrote a book called Gorillas of Grace and in there he wrote this prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, perhaps you've already heard what I wanted to tell you. What I wanted to ask is, forgive me, heal me, increase my courage, please. Renew in me a little of love and faith and a sense of confidence and a vision of what it might mean to live as though you were real and I mattered and everyone was sister and brother. What I wanted to ask in my blundering way is, don't give up on me. Don't become too sad about me, but laugh with me and try again with me, and I will with you too. Jesus changes the way we view life, and Jesus changes the way we view death. And thirdly, Easter changes the way we view Jesus. This day changed all the commentary about Jesus of Nazareth. I happen to believe the single most important question any of us will answer in this life is who is Jesus? Who is this man? I think more hangs in the balance on that question than anything else I can think about. Who you say Jesus is. It doesn't matter if you're, it doesn't matter what kind of spiritual background you have. Here's what's just historical fact about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He he lived a couple thousand years ago. He was born and raised in a town called Nazareth. He became a carpenter by trade, following his father's trade. Jesus Christ of Nazareth lived and grew up. That's just historical fact. And it's historical fact that he was put on a very public trial with Pontius Pilate as governor and a big crowd and they released a guy named Barabbas and they sentenced Jesus to death. That's just historical fact. 
It's just historical fact that they beat him to the point where he couldn't carry his own cross, where he had to draft Simon in to walk up the hill of Golgotha, the cross that he would eventually be crucified on. That's just historical fact. Thousands of people were witnessing it. Hundreds and hundreds of writers have written about it. It's just historical fact that they put him on that cross and they drove the spikes in his hands and through his ankles and he took his last breath and said it is finished and the Roman soldier pierced with his spear his side and water and blood poured out. He died on that cross. That's just historical fact. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't even have to be that much interested in Jesus. You that's just that's just what happened. That's reality. Even if you didn't take any of the account of the Bible on this story, if you just found all the other historical writings on it, you would conclude Jesus lived a couple thousand years ago in Nazareth. He grew up, was put on trial, was beaten, sentenced to death, crucified, died, laid in a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, said, I want to donate my tomb to this Jesus. That's historical fact that Jesus' body was laid in that tomb. It's historical fact that a big old boulder was rolled over it and Pontius Pilate put his seal on it and probably posted his two best guards around it and said, whatever you do, keep that body in there. That's all just historical fact. But here's the real question of the day. What happened after they laid him in that tomb? That's the question. What happened? Well, you know the Roman soldiers, they have an answer now. They might like their answer, but they have an answer. We'll read about it in a second. Pontius Pilate's got an answer now. Uh, he didn't like it either. The elders and chief priests who chanted crucify him, who put all the pressure on Pilate to make sure Barabbas got set free and not Jesus, they're the ones who wanted him dead. They all have an answer. Mary and Mary and Peter and John and several hundred other disciples they all have an answer. And their answer is this. Jesus walked out. Huh. How about that? Jesus, whom you laid in there, completely dead, signed, sealed, and delivered over the tomb, the account we just read, an angel came, rolled the stone, and Jesus walked out. The only man with footprints going out of the grave. Jesus of Nazareth. That changed everything. Which is why the next paragraph we're going to read here. Why is this in Matthew's gospel? Because, follow this now, verse 11. While the women were on their way, they're running back from the tomb to tell the rest of the friends what had happened. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. Picture that meeting. So the chief priests, who were very focused on eliminating Jesus. Just shut the Jesus train down. Just silence that guy once and for all. Finally, he's crucified. Finally, he's dead. We can just get rid of all this talk about Jesus. And these Roman guards are standing in front of him now, looking pale, white as a sheet, still shaking, and recounting the story to them. You're not nearly in control as you think you are. See, Pilate thought he was running the show. The chief priest thought they were running the show. The Romans thought they were running the show. Look what they do now. Verse 12, when the chief priests had met with the elders, I'll bet that was quite a meeting, and devised a plan. How about that little strategy session? Um, we didn't see this one coming. What are we going to do now? They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say. His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. In other words, hey, you're not gonna, you're not gonna lose your jobs over this one. We'll cover for you because you're gonna cover for us. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. <laughs> My question is, why all the movement towards cover-up and bribery? Because there's a truth they want covered up. <laughs> what do they want covered up? Um, Pilate, uh, he walked out. Um, chief priests, elders, uh, he walked out. The same Jesus who was bloodied and beaten, and cru- he looked terrible on that. Uh, yeah, he... Uh, He walked out. So they get together and they come, what are we gonna do now? We're gonna bribe the guards. We're gonna go bribery and cover up. Why? Because there's a a story to cover up. And here's the ironic thing. It's been a couple thousand years. Do you think there's been any motivation amongst many uh, political entities or maybe other religious leaders to shut down this Jesus movement? I think there's been a lot of momentum through the years to try to just silence these Jesus folks. You know, they have to do one thing to shut all of us up on this Jesus train. You know one thing. What is the one thing they'd have to do? Just show them the body, point to the remains, right? If they produce the remains of Jesus, the apostle Paul says, uh, church dismissed, no reason for our gathering today. But the reason they haven't been able to find the remains of Jesus is there are no remains to find. (laughs) He's risen. He's alive. He walked out. So the cover-up, how about the cover-up, huh? The reason they're having to cover it up, that's what they're trying to cover up, gang. Do you see? That's just historical fact. That's why there's more evidence for the life crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus than any other historical story like all the other figures that we study in our courses and classes in universities. And we think about these figures from history, military leaders, religious leaders, political leaders. Not one time do we question, did that guy named Napoleon actually live? Of course he lived. Look at all these writings about him. Do you know more evidence exists? Jesus of Nazareth came lived, died, and rose. That's, do you see, this would, it change, Easter changes the way you view Jesus. And because Jesus lives, hope lives, church. This is where hope lives. Easter hope, resurrection hope, hope in a person, a person who endured the depth and painfulness of the human experience and the full wrath of a holy God. He bore it all. When you get to those places in your life, you say, who understands? Who could possibly grasp this? Do you know your next breath is Jesus? Call out to Jesus because he knows. He took the blows. He took the beating all the way to the end. He knows. And because he lives, hope lives. That redemption wins in the end. Grace wins in the end. Love wins in the end. Life wins in the end. Death thought they had the last word. They didn't see Jesus go out. Checkmate, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, boulder you must move, walk out I will do. (laughs) That's Jesus. And that's the Jesus name we gather in right here and right now.
which means whatever you're staring at today, Kay. I don't know what boulder of sin you might look at. You, I just don't, you, maybe there's a sin that's so entangled your life and you think the power that sin has over you. You know what Easter Sunday says? There is one who is greater yet. There is an overcomer yet. It's not all on you. Christ in you, the hope of glory, can overcome that sin. That no whatever heartache and hardship you come up against, that mountain's gonna move, this boulder's gonna move, and Jesus, you just call out his name. One breath. Easter Sunday says, there's real hope that that's not the end of the story. You might be in a dark and difficult valley right now. Easter Sunday says, stay in there, hang with Jesus, and here's what you're promised in the end. Light wins, hope wins, grace wins, love wins, Jesus wins, you win in the end. That's already written. It doesn't mean you're not gonna go through all that stuff. You're just going through it alone. You're gonna navigate with him. And so hope lives because Jesus lives. And it's a resurrection hope. It's a hope with deep roots. Well, I hooked up the water lines on my washer that evening. And for 11 years, they were like this. During that 11 years, I was absolutely convinced that this was hot, or this was cold and this was hot. I was convinced. This is what I was convinced was, and here's what reality was. And I got to thinking, that's, I've done that a lot in life. Anybody else do this a lot in life where you're absolutely convinced that it's this way, and then you keep living a little bit and you realize, oh, my lines are crossed. I didn't, I didn't think that one through all the way. I didn't see that. And maybe it's specifically about Jesus. Maybe you come in this Easter Sunday, you've already decided Jesus really doesn't have anything to do with your life. And you're here at Easter because it's kind of the thing to do on Easter, but you've decided, ah, this everyday life with him, maybe you've drifted too far to what you just think, ah, I got this. Whatever it is. Here's what I think. Could it be your lines are a little crossed on that one? Maybe you've given up on yourself with this. I'll tell you one who's not given up on you. He's not given up on you. Ask anybody else in the blue chairs around here. He hasn't given up on us. He's not gonna give up on you. Or I don't know what other conclusions you've come to about life with Christ, but here's what I want you to think about. Here's the invitation Jesus has for us today. Jesus says, hey, Simpson, bring your twisted up, wadded up, mess of your life. You just bring this. Here's what Jesus said. Just bring all this to me, just like this. Here, here, here's sometimes we think, we got to get all the lines straightened out before we come to Jesus. You know what Jesus says? No, actually, you know, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring your twisted up, messed up life just like it is, and I want you to hand it over to me. And here's what Jesus will do. He'll just kind of step by step, he'll just help you kind of unravel some things, and he'll help you get the blue line connected to cold and the red line connected to hot and he'll get you dialed into reality. And there's nothing like living life in line with reality. Life with God. Life with Christ. Life with hope. 
life with joy. Like those disciples, afraid yet filled with joy. And I can't think of a, a better day to kind of bring the crossed up lines and let Jesus straighten them out than Easter Sunday. And maybe for some of you, it's, uh, it's coming back to what you've known. Maybe for you, it's been a long journey. You were raised with all kinds of foundation. You were raised with the lines pretty plugged in right. But as you became young adults and got moving on with your own life, some things got crossed up. You know all you have to do? Just hand the lines back over and he'll help you sort it out. So whether you come to him for the first time or you come back to him for the hundredth time, he's the wisest, the greatest, and the best. Everybody's gotta learn how to live from somebody. I choose Jesus, the one with footprints walking out of the grave. Say, Jesus, teach me how to live. You can help me keep the line straight. No one better at it than you.